You're listening to Root Cause Remedies, a podcast that explores environmental justice from right here in Hawaii. I'm Lala Nas, your guest and fellow traveler on this Huaka'i to learn more about the issues that affect the lands, waters, humans, and more than humans that sustain us. This season's series is dedicated to Wai. Ulu Cheng is an island of Hawaii Wahine, Kanaka Oivi, mother, and conservationist by profession, a term we reflect on in this episode. I found her to be a profound example of embodying values through her work, pushing the boundaries on terms we take for granted like adaptation and mitigation that get used a lot in the environmental space. Ulu shares beyond scientific analysis and procedural approaches, rooted in a spiritual kanakoivi place of knowing. I gravitate towards conversations like this and love that she flips the script, so to speak, on initiatives that are heavily saturated by technical approaches and often catastrophizing language. Ancestral knowledge provides a deeper and more interconnected worldview and cultural values that hold our resources as sacred elements and look to climate crises much differently. We're living in this moment where we're confronting our last chance to save ourselves from the catastrophic climate destabilization, according to the latest IPCC report released last week, early April of 2022. It has some dire news if we don't act urgently, that's true. But it also presented an opportunity in the mainstream regarding the root causes of climate disaster. The report finally names colonialism as the driver of climate change, as well as the ongoing threat to social justice and equity. That is something that indigenous peoples have been calling out and resisting for generations in the name of protecting the natural world and ecological systems that we depend on. More and more, the mainstream is catching up to affirm the realization that we need to return to localized indigenous pathways as a collective, honoring the sacredness of humans and more than human lives. I'll stop there so we can get into this epic talk story with Manavahine Uluching. What I always find a beautiful grounding question is, especially when it comes to our conversation about Vai and water, is what waters do you come from? What vibe do you identify with? Aloha avakea. Ovao o Moana po mai kai kaulu vehi o ka'ala ching. My name is Moana po mai kai kaulu vehi o ka'ala ching. You know, vai. What vai do I come from? What waters have nourished and nurtured me from day one to day 30,000, whatever this is for me on this planet? I'm a Kona girl, so Vai is not as visibly evident in my, when I was growing up, everyday world, for me at least. And I specifically grew up in North Kona, where Vai was not physically expressed on the land in the same way that I've grown accustomed to now, having lived in, in Hilo for quite some time. So that 
I think the question of where, what waters we come from or that we're of is interesting for a Kona person to answer because it's my experience with vai or with waters that leads to the answer of that question, yeah, of what waters do I come from? Well, when you come from a land and a landscape that is known for not its vai and not its surface flow, not, not interacting with vai as it traverses the aina that we can see, it's a little bit different. So I think the, the question for me is really like, what is my interaction? What is my experience with vai and what what, how have those experiences and those interactions shaped me? So I think back to the times when Vai was very visible for me. And it was always in those times of the Kona storms, which we've just experienced in the last week. And then the summer, because summer is typically when we have a bit more rain on the Kona side. And those memories of Vai, as I'm experiencing, experiencing them on the landscape, as they're moving from the mountain to the sea, are very fast moving. They're very turbulent. They're very, they're churning up the earth. They are not the gentle flowing waters. And perhaps that's life in Kona, in the Kona that I grew up in where there's all of these experiences in extremes at times because Kona is is heat you know it's it's Kane that that is you know acting out on the land and creating these ripples of of heat that come up so there's these extremes of heat and then with the heat comes vai and so that vai comes in a turbulent you know manner so there's these kind of extreme experiences with with all the elements, but then specifically white. So you learn to kind of be adaptable to or in extreme situations and know how to adapt yourself as it relates to what waters are doing. That's very different from my experience being here in Hilo for the last two decades, which I can say that I've also experienced Vai and interacted with Vai in very energizing ways you know, where that, that water is doing the same thing that I experienced it in Kona, where it's turning up the earth. It is, it is moving trees and boulders and it is very bombastic, but it's also very gentle. It's also something that moves with purpose because water always does. It's trying to get from A to Z and it has this gentility about it that I've experienced here in Hilo because it's a regular occurring of rain. And so there's a, a gentility to, to how the, the water moves over land. And that's not something I really experienced in Kona. So I don't know if I'm of a specific type of water. I think it's my interactions and my experiences with waters that I think I kind of reflect most strongly on. I would also, and you know, this is true for everyone, I think, well here in Hawaii at least, when the unseen waters express themselves. So when you have the springs, when you have these, you know, pockets of life because of water, being present, there's a specific type of experience and an interaction that you have. And that's that's very meaningful. And I think we seek out those points of entry of the water's points of entry into the world because we we need that to survive. And so when when the, the unseen becomes seen in terms of water, that's always something to kind of sit in wonderment around and, and then sit in gratitude. I love that. <laughs> seen and unseen, we think about vai and all its forms, right? Whether it's liquid, solid, gas, mm -hmm. significance as an element. 
and its shape-shifting capacity in all forms of climate from one side to the other. That reflection of adaptiveness, um, I hear you talking about as well, as you've moved from one type of climate on the same island to another. Yeah, that brings me to the question of what's your story? Tell us about your life, a little bit of your upbringing. I'm always so thankful when someone asks me that. So thank you, because I am such a person rooted in who and where I come from. And so when someone asks me a question like that, I'm grateful to talk about the people and the places and the experiences that have created me. So again, uh, my name is Moana Pomaika'ika'uluvehiwaka'alaching. I am the product of many, many, many unions because we think about our mother, father, grandfather, grandmother on one side, grandfather, grandmother on the other side. And then we we think back, it's thousands of couplings that have occurred over over time. And, you know, I can't know the circumstances around all of them, but one can hopefully assume that uh, love played a part of it. So I was born on Oahu at Moanalua. My father uh, was in the army and so he was stationed at Schofield Barracks. Uh, So my mother and two older sisters lived on Oahu at the time. And I was born and within a year, so I was still really young, I was given to my mom's older sister, one of my mom's older sisters, to be hanaid by her. And, and and taken in to be raised by her and then eventually also by my, my maternal grandparents. I say I'm the product of Aloha because that act of giving yourself, because we are a product of our parents. So my birth mother gave a part of her away to someone who she loved with all her heart and trusted with her entire being. And so I was forged in this act and this these offerings of Aloha, which are, is really powerful for me. I've always gone back to that that first act of, of love that my birth mother showed my Hanai mother because she loved her so dearly and she loved me dearly. And she knew that following our customs of Hanai, you know, that this was right. This was, you know, something that was was meant to be. And as a mother now, I can only imagine what that must be like. Um, I've always thanked my mom for that, my birth, my biological mom for that. So I was raised in, uh, for a bit, spent some time with my Hanai mother, my auntie on Oahu. Uh, And then by and by, we came home to Kona, which is where my maternal grandparents lived. My mother, Moana Roy Kuma, uh, and my birth father, Lo Kapuokalaniching, they remained fixtures, strong fixtures in my life and very true to the, you know, tradition of Hanai. You know, I was, you know, Hanai to an, another um, person and, and lived in another household, but I was very, very much still a part of my birth parents' lives and and they a part of mine. But I was raised by, again, my, my mom's older sister, Lauren Mikahala Roy, and my maternal grandparents, my grandfather's David Kahelemauna Roy Jr. Uh, and then my, my grandmother, Verda Lealoha Vida Roy. My grandfather was like a, a mighty koa, this passive element. And to me, I can describe it, you know, in my in my mind's eye, it's like him in that as that mighty koa in a forest. And, you know, providing that structure and that canopy to thrive under. And then my grandmother was and still is the beautiful fern 
floor. And she just created this beautiful hali'i that provided so much nourishment, so much comfort and, and care. And then my Hanai mother, I've always thought of her as the rains that come, the sun that comes, all of the things that a little seedling and, and a growing tree needs to to survive. She's both at the same time, the additives, as well as the kind of source for me. Between the three of them, they are, well, my grandfather passed in 2006 and then my grandmother, she just transitioned several years ago. So it's it's been a little while that I've been without them, but I always refer to them in the, they are present. Uh, so the three of them, they do so many things as Makua and Kupuna do. They're, you know, both the, the elements that help me be rooted, as well as the sources that help me to sprawl and grow and ulu. That's very important to me. I grew up in Kona and then left and came to Hilo when I was fairly young, you know, still a teenager. Hilo has been a wonderful home. It's a place where I've been able to set new roots, start a family and raise my family. I come from a big family, so I have five younger brothers, two older sisters, and then the baby, uh, one younger sister. You know, again, I was raised by my Hanai mother and um, my grandparents, but I very much so was a part of, you know, my siblings' lives. I moved, you know, back and forth. I would always be at my mom's house, uh, stayed there when I wanted to, and then went home to my grandparents and, and my, my auntie whenever I wanted to. My lived experience is one where I have the benefit of, of learning from, from multiple spaces and, and, and in multiple settings and, and really looking at how things from a young age, being able to understand where things meet, where they, where things converge and, and then where things, you know, kind of, you know, how things are different, let's just say, because the way one thing is done at one house might be a little different at another. That's something that's also stayed with me throughout my life too. I love to be in the places that where things connect and where there's intersections and convergence and sometimes turbulent waters because that's where like wonderful things happen. I'm very, very honored to have so many people in my life who are my foundation. What you're sharing about your origin story and your ancestors, um, your by the ohana that's nourished and raised you makes me think about as you grew up, what guided your passions and purpose in life? And maybe sharing a little bit of that story of what led you into your focus in your life purpose and the work you do and the relationships you're a part of. My grandfather and my my Hanai mother and, and actually all of all of my aunties and my mother you know just by default being the children of my grandfather and my grandmother who both of them really instilled in me being of service to your family, to your people. My grandfather expressed that so strongly with such a fierceness. He was a person who stood up for his people and, and he loved his kona. He demonstrated to me what it meant to, to serve your people. He was a, a historian, an educator, a builder of movements and he restored the temple Ahuena at Kamakohonu in Kailua. And he, he led the restoration of that heiau in the, in the 70s. And of course, I wasn't alive yet, but hearing the stories of the restoration of the heiau and then experiencing and taking part in the care for the heiau 
through my younger years and into my teens. And then even after I moved to Hilo, he did that with all his heart because it was a kuleana bestowed upon him. He awamod that kuleana because it was for, it was for the people. Through that process, countless people reconnected with language, with ceremonial practices. Makahana Kaike at that time, writing the books on, on rest, physical restoration of sacred sites. And through that, you know, countless people benefited. And, and so his demonstration of being in service to his family, to his people, at the sacrifice of, of his own, you know, whatever his desires has always stuck with me. And then my grandmother being his staunchest supporter, biggest ally, really demonstrated to me the power and the impact that we can have when we think not of ourselves, but of the kaya'ulu that we exist in and how we can, how can we put ourselves to best use in our communities, in our families? And it's not easy. It's not easy to dedicate your life to others. I think I think it's easy to take that for granted. Those are powerful lessons. I feel like those were the things that were imprinted on me from a very, very young age. How can I ensure you're not just surviving, but thriving so that we can all thrive, so that I can thrive too? That's how I approach what I do in my personal world and in my professional world. I work for a nonprofit organization and we kako'o, we stand, you know, shoulder to shoulder at times with ohana who have continued to awamo the kuleana of, of caring for aina in their places. And sometimes that means standing shoulder to shoulder. A lot of times it means standing just behind to be that kako'o. And it's that notion of, of serving. So that's something that has really, in terms of origin stories, who I come from is a direct result of who I am, what I do, and how I do it today. It makes me even more curious of what is it that your your life purpose and your work and your hours in the day are filled with? The work that you've been doing around conservation and Malama Aina work. Yeah, interestingly, I, I was never one of those people that knew exactly what I wanted to do, except for knowing that it had to be for others. Although I wouldn't even could have expressed it in that way, you know, as someone who was you know, just getting out of high school and figuring out what they want to do in the world. But I do remember shortly after leaving Kona and, and coming to Hilo, and it was through different experiences and, you know, learning from different people, you know, I started to get this sense of there must be something in this world where I am playing a role in how Aina is, you know, quote unquote, cared for, you know, how do, how, how do we care for Aina? You know, what does that look like? And I never liked to call it resource management or conservation. At the time, those terms and those fields existed and kind of just fell into those disciplines and those kind of buckets of training. In those early years in Hilo, I, I started to coalesce around what is my role? And I knew that it was going to be different from what the models were at that time and even kind of what they are today, you know, where you have this kind of management system, this contemporary management system uh, that consists of a, a state agencies that have mandated role to manage. Because I think that's even starting to, to change a little bit ever so slightly. So I, I knew that there was something around that and I knew that 
what resource management was going to look like and how I could be a part of that was something that I was interested in pursuing more. So I think that really meant that I had to go out and and live experiences that could help shape how I wanted to kind of be and exist in this field. And so that, you know, was everything from hula, lua, creative writing and, you know, the artistic expression. Uh, and for me, it takes the form of, of writing. All of those lived experiences are, I think, what matter the most in terms of, you know, again, my approach to air quotes resource management today. What have been some of the, um, the catalysts that led you or highlights of some of the experiences you've been able to have over the years of the work you've been involved in around Malama Aina and being a steward and kia'i or protector of our elements um, and natural resources in relationship to community or organizations or even specific places that you can think of a story to tell that was maybe a catalyst or a highlight and you can look back and say, oh, I remember this time. This was a special moment. By my nature, I'm such a generalist. I don't know if there's ever one point in time that's a catalyst for me. And I don't really know if that's a result of being a generalist, but I, I feel like there are, there's a, a, a change in, a slow change of current that more accurately describes, I think, how I move. Um, versus a bombastic Pele moment that drives, you know, change. In growing up, I have always, or I've listened to the to the stories that my, you know, my grandparents, you know, told to me. I I was um, and I am still a ferocious reader, so I, I read a lot of the Moolelo. Uh, so I so I listened to Moolelo and I read a lot of Moolelo. And in those formative years, you know, and when when I started to think about, you know, this kind of world of conservation or 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 malama aina, uh, it it was always about the spiritual connection or the the just the connectedness to the elements of the moolelo, whether they were human or you know non-human, and the way that they were expressed might have taken on human characteristics, but it was very much so that they were kind of elemental. You know, those stories and how I experienced those stories in real time, you know, growing up, whether that was out in the ocean or, you know, cleaning hala with my, you know, grandpa, you know, so those stories connected me to the elements, the ecosystems, the species, you know, that that we live amongst and and it was that 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 really fed my desire to okay i better start to do my part to malama these because they are the things that made up um those moolelo and and i was i'm connected to them because of their importance in my understanding and the way that i view my world because it's through that cultural lens it's through those moolelo and so i need to protect that because that's important. So it was less about having as many fish in the water as possible or, you know, planting as many trees as possible because we just need more trees. Yes and yes, <laughs> but it was it was more about 
how to make sure that those elements within those mo'olelo continued on. And it, because it was the, 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 it's the actions of humans that put those, those elements of those mo'olelo at, at risk. So I have to do my part to protect them because if those elements are not a part of our lived experience, then what I would call my cultural experience is, is dramatically altered and in some cases ceased to exist. If we lose, if and when we lose species, sadly, right? Then that, that changes my whole, potentially changes my, my whole worldview and my, the, the cultural existence for me. And that's huge. When we lose those elements, we can't recreate them. We, we, we've lost a part of that. We've lost a part of us. And that, that's something that I'm not willing to see. And so therefore, I have to be very active in this space. You're kind of getting at my curiosity on what, what you see as a protector and steward, a caregiver of the human and beyond human communities that we're in relationship with. What are you seeing? What caused you to say, hey, we need to protect this even more? You shared through your genealogy, it's been kind of part of your, your makeup. It's in your blood to play an active role, but particularly in choosing, or maybe it chose you. In that space of you choosing to really lean into this, this kuleana, what are some of those threats you're seeing um, in real time right now um, that you could relate to the elements and specifically to Vai? Yeah, I read a book. It's, it's such a powerful kind of way to, to preface a question, right? Like, what is that motivator? And I read in a book, this is, and this was some years ago, the author, I think it's Christopher Uhl, an American writer, talking about how folks develop or can, and can develop, aim to develop uh, ecological consciousness. And so to, to have that aina, basically, yeah, that aina consciousness, something that, you know, our kupuna and, and uh, you know, instilled in us from a, from birth uh, and, and that we live. Um, so this, this author, in the first few pages, and it, was, it blew my mind, he talked about how a water molecule made up of, of hydrogen and oxygen. Hydrogen is... And, you know, this is so this is why at its like atomic level, uh, hydrogen in the world that we exist in today was created billions and billions and billions of years ago. Right. The scientists say like the, the big the big bang, you know, that at that at that cosmic moment is when every hydrogen atom that exists today was created at that moment every hydrogen atom that exists today and it's worth repeating because it's pretty like mic drop moment and no other cosmic event has occurred right because we're all still here therefore there has never been any more hydrogen that has been made since then 14 billion years ago so the argument that he makes in his book is how every hydrogen atom, which is vai, when we talk about water. In his book, he's talking about age. So if you think about we are made up of water, which is made up of two hydrogen atoms, one could question how old you are. Are you really 39? 
Or are you really 14 billion years old? Because we are made up of that vi. What I also take away was that every water molecule that has ever existed and that will ever exist is here now. So you can't you can't make more of it. It's just not possible. You can't destroy it either. It takes on the different forms, as you mentioned earlier. But you can't make any more of it. And so when I read that book and that, that was some years ago and I read I read that and I thought about how every every drop of water that we have every time I go and make a glass of water or every time I see a raindrop fall, that that water has been here for billions and billions of years. And it's the only water that will be here afterwards. And that really sets yourself up as a pretty, from a human perspective, as a really just a minor, minor, very minor actor in this beautiful play of life, because you, we have to approach our protection of Vai with such a fierceness because there will never be any more on this earth as there is now. It's just not possible. That is a catalyst for action. Knowing that what you have is what you're gonna have. No more, only less in the case of Vai in some, in some ways. And if that doesn't motivate someone to act and participate with fierceness, I don't know what can. That was a profound way of grounding us to the larger and longer and deeper genealogy we're all a part of. What I also think about when I think about Vai, because we as humans are made up of it, right? We're 70, more than 70% water. That to me is the ultimate unifier in a world where as flawed human beings, the focus sometimes is on what divides us, what makes us different. If I look back at every living being, the element that connects us is vi, and not from a, it, it exists all around us, therefore we're connected. No, we're made up of it. Every drop of water, that makes up who we are has been a part of someone else and, and not just some other human, some other beyond human. And if that's not a unifier and a bringer together of genealogies and a unifying mo'oku auhau for every living being on the planet, I don't know what is. I don't want to say we're in polarizing times because throughout human history, you know, again, humans are flawed and, and, and the differences uh, amongst us seem to be what what some individuals and regimes and, and governments just seem to ground themselves in instead of looking at the thing that connects us all, which is, you know, at its basic molecular level, uh, vai. And what a beautiful thing, what a beautiful way to think about us being connected as Kanaka, certainly connected to, to place through Vai, um, but to each other. And what a beautiful way to look at someone, you know, alohe alo, who looks nothing like me. Maybe we don't have anything in common, you know, in terms of where we come from, what's my favorite food or whatever it is. But I can say with a million percent certainty and with aloha that we are connected because of that beautiful element of vai. That's the way I prefer to look at the world is and look at others. And then there's this need 
to fiercely protect this element that connects us all and to erase the things or to put that narrative out of our mind that we are so different and that we are so disconnected because this, this or this. I mean, relating Vi to to peace and justice and connection and the foundation of our humanity and existence is, I think, a beautiful way for us to start practicing our humanness again in in our present times. And I just really mahalo you for setting that intention and sharing that mana'o. You know, I'm a water dog, right? So if I think about it another way, my, my Chinese zodiac, my, my, my animal and the element, I'm a water dog. And to, to water dogs, family is everything. Community, connectedness to the things that give us life is everything. We're lost without it. And when I say we, I mean as a water dog. We're, we're, we're lost without those things. So the things that connect me to my family, present, past, and future, which in this way we can think about vibing that element, it is of the utmost importance to aloha and malama and vai in all its forms. So I had to I had to bring that up because, you know, I'm also Chinese girl. So, I, you know, I look at Chinese astrology, our own, you know, way of interpreting, you know, from a Kanaka Oivi point of view. Being a water dog makes so much sense to me. <laughs> I don't know anything else. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm a Pisces and a monkey, very much in the water element as well. I too am very connected in that elemental space to to water and its and its many forms. Being able to look at root causes and root remedies and root origin stories of the voices and humans we get to share a story with on this in this vessel, um, this podcast. Would love to hear from you on, you shared, not necessarily dive into like root causes of the challenges we're facing, but I felt like you were kind of getting at it. I call it my, if I'm interpreting it wrong, what I thought I started to hear you, you share was some of the root causes to our challenges around the well-being of our elements specifically by is we've gotten disconnected from a spiritual and sacred space and relationship from them. What are some of those root causes that are causing the kalmaha or the unhealth of, of our elements and specifically by today? If you could say, not to point fingers too, but say, if I have to go to the origins of where this kalmaha came from, this uh, concern around the health of our waters that sustain us, um, what would that be for you? What do you see that as some of the root causes? Just the other day, I was telling a group of, um, of friends this kind of just wondering that I had been having. And, you know, I don't, I don't really watch the local news, um, but there was a, a, a description of the, the storm as it was, you know, moving past the Pai'aina and, and, and continuing on its journey. The description by the person on the news was, oh, this, the remnants of this nasty storm. See, we bear witness to the destruction of this, this nasty storm as it moves its way out of our neighborhood. And aren't we just all so happy that we don't, you know, have this nasty storm? And I thought to myself, my goodness, that's the way that our elements are being described. The narrative of the elements being destructive 
negative, dirty, all of those things, and effectively demonizing the elements. That is the that is the narrative. Instead of saying, yes, this is the time of that element. This is the element that we are experiencing now. And these are the things, this is how we benefit from that expression of that element. So yes, the, the rains are coming, the heavy rains are coming and they are flushing out these areas, which they have done for millions of years. Yes, this element is here doing this work. Let us be thankful for it and get out of its way and not have this superiority complex that everything that happens that is disruptive to the human's world is bad. And it really stuck with me. And I said, well, I'm not watching that news channel anymore. Uh, and you know, it never matter because I don't watch the news anyways. But it really gave me pause. And which is why I thought to myself, we need to work so hard and so many you know, in this in this time are really helping our society to change over, to remember and to unsubscribe to that and to accept that the elements and in this case, you know, we're experiencing vie in many forms and sometimes it's very, very powerful and strong to accept them and to be thankful for them. That's what I choose to to subscribe to. And it's that it's that narrative that causes the disconnect. It's by saying that rain was so bad, so destructive, so nasty. That's another another opportunity for a human to disconnect from that element and from, you know, the benefits of what that element is functioning in at that time perpetuates the disconnect by demonizing. And that I think is something we need to, I mean, talk about fiercely battling. We need to change that. You know, I had half a mind to write a e strongly worded email to the to the TV station and say, this is not what I want my children to hear because I raise my children to, yes, it's raining today. And we should say thank you. When you're thirsty, what you gonna drink? The stuff that's coming out of the sky, babe. And what you eating tonight in order to make that broccoli grow? It needed rain because you cannot have it both ways. You cannot be super bummed that it's raining when you thirsty and you're going to go walk over to your sink and grab a glass of water. But you're going to be mad at the rain. You cannot have it both ways. That was so beautiful um, and expresses some of the feelings I've had towards mainstream, whether it's the news or even in my work in climate change. The weaving, it's long lengths of weaving, which is beautiful. So I want to make sure we capture this. They feel like it's getting woven into this tapestry. I will say a hundred words when only 20 is necessary. And I will always take that long road because sometimes there's a view from that road that might have been super critical yeah. to see in order for the entire journey to make sense. Yes, girl. I'm all about it. We need to make more time for this. Uh, we're always rushing around to the next destination. And I really appreciate um, the scenic route that you're taking this, this, this whole cut yarn. So what you just shared really hit home for me in the equity work that I've been able to engage in specifically around climate change initiatives at the government level. And that's been one of my concerns is the way that our mainstream or status quo society and institutions are thinking about and relating to coming to solutions or conclusions about 
climate change and it being this huge threat that we have to combat, that we have to fight, and that we have to get rid of, and that it's this dangerous threat to human civilization which it could very well be. But I think the way that we're going about it and relating to it is completely wrong in my eyes, or it's taking us down a dangerous road and still using the same cosmology that kind of got us into this mess, we could say, of the human influence over changing the well-being of our climate globally. And in that space around, you know, what you've heard around conservation or sustainability or climate change initiatives, looking at some of the remedies from a place-based, from an Indigenous, um, from a Kanakawiwi perspective. I kind of want to open up that door a little bit to, to get curious and have some wondering ins as well, is from this space of Pilina and deep relationship and cosmology to vine or natural elements and our cycles being kin, being ohana. What do you see some of the remedies um, that maybe are a bit different from the mainstream solutions around whether it's adaptation or climate mitigation or helping to stop erosion or deforestation, maybe some of the remedies that you see possible and being embodied right now within our communities that you think should be leaned into further or looked at more seriously or held with a more higher value. That's the big wondering is how are we approaching this change and is it productive or are we continuing down the path that as you said, you know, kind of kind of got us here. I think that climate mitigation the time for mitigation is po, and I think many would argue that it was never about mitigating. It was always about adapting. It was always about how is our behavior going to change because our kupuna, our ancestors lived by that, that notion to adapt because that's all you could do. You're in the, the middle of a beautiful, vast blue world. All, all, all of your options include how you adapt to the environment that you're in, the changing environment that you're in. Yeah. So I think that adaptability piece, I think, was always, you know, where from a Kanaka or from an Oivi perspective, certainly, you know, other indigenous peoples, you know, around the world approach climate change in the same, same way, you know, about, OK, we've seen this before, uh, you know, because it's told in our mo'olelo, it's documented in, in other ways in our culture. And, and these are the things that we know we need to do. So it's the same for us now. I think the big word that I think about, you know, as you were, you know, kind of opening up with that question was sacrifice. What are we as humans willing to sacrifice in our daily lives that we know is going to have a positive impact, but also be what it is that we're going to adapt around? When I think of the word sacrifice, I also think about my birth mother and the sacrifice um, that you make for your, your own happiness sacrifices. Uh, and it was a, and it was done so lovingly, right? It's a beautiful sacrifice. It's one that you do with all your heart and love. Uh, and so sacrifice doesn't have to be bad or sad. What it means is that you're putting others, humans and beyond humans before yourself. And that doesn't always mean that you're going to lose out somehow. Yes, it can be sad. Yes, it can, it can hurt. Yes, it means change, but it doesn't have to be the end all. So when we talk about climate change, for me, it's about, okay, what am I willing to sacrifice for the sake of every other being on the planet? The urgency behind that, that's powerful for me. And it doesn't mean that we lose. It means that we gain. And so again, when we subscribe to a narrative where we're not accepting 
hoping that change will mean something negative for me or us that we will actually gain. And in terms of messaging, as you, you know, kind of, you know, alluded to in, in their question, you know, how do we approach climate change differently? And, and I think it is that messaging, you know, where, where, where sacrifice is not, is not something to be feared or is means that you're losing something. It means that there's, there's a adjustment there's a movement of something. There's a seeking out of a, a new equilibrium, which Vi always wants to do, right? Water is always moving to create an equilibrium. And so, you know, by mimicking that element more, perhaps we're getting closer to thriving in this new world, which includes, you know, pretty dramatic expressions of climate change in the economics of the world, you know, how do we stop subsidizing all of the businesses and economies that are based on the things contributing to climate change? So how how, how do you get governments to stop that? I, I, I don't have an answer, but it seems logical that we would start there. But there's so much to unpack there, right? There's, you know, how industries exert control over governments. Therefore, you know, there's all of that. So it's a big, it's a big challenge. I've always wondered why in Hawaii do we bring in so many things that we know we can't get rid of? So why is it legal or yeah, why? And then it, it's me as a, as an individual consumer. Yeah. Like why, why do I get that container of yogurt then? Why Ulu? Why are you making that choice? Oh, sacrificing yogurt. <laughs> How could that yogurt come from this place, right? Like, mm -hmm. we do have Big Island goat cheese and yogurt. So that's how could we have that more accessible and really look at our micro, micro economies, place-based island economies as a place to maybe orient solutions from? You know, there's so much talk around circular economies and place-based economies, you know, resources are utilized and kept within a specific geographic area. Uh, and there's a much more tight-knit, you know, circling of resource use and benefit. I couldn't agree more uh, in terms of the of that being a part of a solution. And yet it also brings into play, how do you make those systems birth them and then grow them in a, in a competing world where government subsidies will continue to go towards uh, individual and then more expanded markets, goods and services that make it not competitive. It's, it's, such, a, it's such a quagmire. If we talk about local and place-based level of whether it's food systems, I think it's it's imperative to look at all of the need in a specific geographic area so that you can connect to the two, the moku, moku level. So you have the need at this level and scale, the demand. Therefore, how do you create, you know, how do you make sure that as a, a community, how are you creating a supply? And government is such a key, you know, per, uh, player in that space. Looking at the remedies around, you know, and the foundation of whether we're talking about food security, housing security, health and nutrition, or education, without water, none of that exists. Without healthy water, none of that exists. It's a foundational function of existence. And thinking about the remedies again around adaptation, relating to the elements in, in a deeper, more ancestral space. If there is 
one or two specific ways that, say, a 10-year-old came up to you and said, Auntie Ulu, how do we save the water? What would you answer? I think to start, and this is true for the 10-year-old and the 50-year-old, know where your water is coming from. Understand the source. Understand the dynamics, the inputs, the outputs of that source so that you can understand what it takes to capture and eventually have that water come into your physical consciousness, your, your, your physical being. Think about downriver. Think about where the water that you interact with, and let's say use, where does it go? And really look at that movement of water in its totality to understand where are the points that you need to be most maka'ala about what your actions are and how they impact that water's movements. Clearly, I think we can all do better at point source pollution. So knowing that all of the you know, the high, the high chemical use, everything that's in our world that is, is synthetic, being conscious about that, how it, how it can impact that flow of water. That's a huge one. It's keeping in line with that. Think about, there's never, never a better time where this sentiment makes sense. Out of sight, out of mind. When you flush that toilet, when you turn on your sink and that water goes down the drain, you don't think about it anymore. That's worthy of emphasizing that we can't think about out of sight, out of mind anymore. And we have to think about what happens downriver. I also think kind of tying it back to there is never the same amount of water that there is on this planet now. It's what it was before and forevermore. I think about that, you know, washing my hair. You're like, okay, like, let's cut this. Let's cut this short because everything that's coming out of my shower is going somewhere and it's never going to come back. That same molecule not going to come back to me in my lifetime. So I better I better take care of it, that it's finite, that there's not an unlimited am amount of it, it being water and that there there'll never be more. I think that's a powerful message for a 10 year old or a 50 year old. It's powerful for me, for sure. I haven't heard it put in that, that way. In closing, I always like to open up space for either a kahea you may have, resources or community orgs or movement work that you would want listeners to hear or know about or lived resiliency or the root remedies that you would like to lift up in this space? I've been really impacted by the mana'o of Vai being that great unifier, that universal unifier for life on earth. And when I think about people near and far, and I think about those who struggle with access to healthy, clean, life-giving waters and how that's compromised by industrialization, how we've become as a society desensitized to the suffering of others. I think about how Vai has the power to bring us together again. And I'm specifically thinking about when you have these tragedies of, of water contamination and, and that's happening on Oahu and what it means to lose that life source. I think we need to 
battle against that desensitizing. Let us put ourselves in others' shoes more often. And let us go through these times as we, we would be together. And I guess what I mean is, what does it mean when your five-year-old is crying because her eyes are burning when she showers and you don't know what's wrong at that point? Your 10-year-old is throwing up because the water is poisoned. What do you do as a parent, as a just a human in that space, but feel nothing but despair and pain? So let us think about that and let that sit for a little bit and influence what we would do, how we would move with our brothers and sisters in those spaces, what we can do in our daily practices and beyond. But let's use that element of water to unite us in our humanity. If there's nothing else that we can think of that we have in common with another person, Let's think of Vai as that unifier and let it move us towards action. We have to hang on to those things too, because we become distracted in our world, in our existence. The daily rhythms of life, for better or for worse, distract us from those points in times. And I'm, we're all guilty of it. We have to stay in those moments just a little while longer every day so that the activation that is created by bearing witness to these things continues. So we, we just, we need to, you know, try as we can to stay in those moments and, and let them really move us. Wash over us in ways that help us to connect in our own abilities. And it is overwhelming because it is, it's seemingly the world is getting more and more confusing and the hulihia is expanding and accelerating in many ways. I think many, including myself, that can be overwhelming of saying like, where do I even begin? Where do we go from here? And I love the way that you shared being able to, instead of the default that we tend to live in in this present world of you see it, you, you hear it, and then you shift into something else or kuliana, you have to continue to tend to in other places. But what I'm hearing from you is pause just that few seconds longer to really be present in that real experience that's happening that can open the door for deeper connection to how we can be part of that kako that needs to happen on a collective broader space, or at least understanding how we can as individuals be more hono or connected to okay I may not be able to help that mother over there directly maybe I can but how can I make sure that say okay I'm gonna use less water I'm gonna nurture or be in relationship with Vi in another way appreciate in a deeper space because I see how precious it is and someone else's struggle we are robotic in that way right we're like okay wake up do this then this then that happens. Then I check these emails. Then I do this. And so sometimes sitting with that pausing there might also mean that there's a complete shift in how you move throughout the rest of your day. That's hard for some for, for, for us to accept because we're so robotic, we're so mechanized. But maybe what I was supposed to get done wasn't even on the day's agenda. And yet it was going to have this bigger impact 
and mm. and it was and we were supposed to go down that road but mm. we have to let ourselves be okay with that and have that disruption that loving disruption happen and then if we can be satisfied by it because we know that there was something more meaningful that happened by sitting in that moment experiencing the pause and then embracing the shift Cool girl, there's a whole nother path that is coming up for me as you share that pause you're talking about. That loving disruption of the trajectory and the momentum and the acceleration of our contemporary productive agenda and what COVID did to pause us. And we didn't have a choice at that point. Well, we did, but we didn't. We, we did choose to pause and it was for the idea of survival and the safety of our community's well-being. But what that pause did was reveal how resilient our elements truly are. When we paused, what that did for life as a whole, it just, that's a whole nother space we could dive into, but how important these pauses are in in the work we're doing um, towards change towards healing, towards transformation, towards connection. So I really mahalo you for that pause. That talk story didn't feel like a coincidence. I've never spoken with Ulu before, but we certainly speak the same language. I really hope it inspired you to think about ways you can reclaim your relationship with Vi, thinking of water not just as a resource, but an ancestor to learn from. Because as Ulu shared, the elements around us are Ohana, family. They're Kupuna, our elders, that have been around since the beginning of time, before humans even existed on this planet Earth. As we know, not everyone or every institution sees it through that OEV understanding. The threats are real, and we certainly have a role to play every day to think about upstream and downstream impacts to Vai. We can learn to be like Vai, which is always moving towards equilibrium, balance, pono. We can use these crises in front of us as an opportunity to bring balance back to our systems, our relationships, and it all begins with unsubscribing, as Ulu mentions, to division or separateness, narratives that demonize the elements. If we truly treat them as kin, as ohana, then we will act very differently in ensuring they thrive because of that aloha, that kuleana, and mutual interdependence. This is what indigenous knowledge and leadership can teach us. As government leaders and the world's top scientists are acknowledging that decolonization must be central to the climate response, I invite you to get curious about how you can decolonize or maybe rather indigenize yourself. Maybe starting with your own relationship to Vai. Find practical ways to respect and honor this incredibly rich ancestral element we are gifted with each day. Mahalo Nui for listening in on this final episode of the season. As always, be well and stay rooted.